Amen. Well, we missed last week's study for the absolute best of causes. We had such a fantastic time at Hope in a Future, and we're so excited to continue to hear about the things that the Lord did that evening, not only the ministry that went on between the church, not just our church, but the big church, everybody, and the fostering community, but also the fellowship between the many churches that were represented there. So thank you to everyone who joined us. We look forward to continuing to do more ministry like that and seeing Christ work out in fantastic ways. But tonight we will conclude our study in 2 Peter and we'll see him work through his word. Let's get a little running start in verse 8 leading up to where we'll start in verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we remember that God's time is not the same as our time. He's not slow or neglectful or lacks, unconcerned when it comes to his second coming, to keeping his promise to return. But it's his patience that allows for more to come into the kingdom, for the kingdom of the Lord to grow were he were to, were he were, were he to return, our opportunity to repent, to grow deeper in his grace, to experience that, would altogether come to an end. That was Peter's encouragement to believers as they continued to wait and wait. Many around them saying, where is this Lord? Where is the second coming? Why hasn't he come back yet? Peter encouraged him, but then he said, but the other side of the coin is verse 10. When the Lord is coming, he will indeed come. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. The day of the Lord is an important term in prophecy. <clears throat> And specifically, it's any time when the Lord acts in judgment. We see that not only in the Old Testament, but when we look towards the end times in the period of eschatology in that study, this can point towards the tribulation, the second coming, the millennial kingdom, and the final destruction, the new heavens and the new earth. Now there in verse 10, when it says in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. I think when we read that, we all imagine an earth-shaking, earth-shattering, thunderous clap. Maybe the voice of the Lord, something that would, that would cause us to just 
tremble, a great noise, the greatest noise, a noise of destruction, the forever undoing of this entire world. But the sound specifically that the word used there in the original language points to is that of a whizzing arrow. So it's a great noise, not in volume, but a noise that's captivating. Not captivating for the audible presence it has. A splash in water would be another great example of how this word was used in the original Greek. Subtle, but really captures your attention. Powerful because of what it means. Peter says, speaking of the day of the Lord, most specifically in this context to that latter end of the larger period that is the day of the Lord. That destruction of the heavens and the earth that will mark the end of the day of the Lord. But we've covered so much of that in Isaiah, and we'll continue to cover so much more of it. Although it's a very deep and interesting topic, I'm not going to say any more of it this evening. But also, it's not necessary to follow the point that Peter's making as we move into verse 11. Verse 11, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Waiting is hard, but we're not waiting for nothing. And when the wait is finally over, everything that we know, Everything that we can touch will be stamped with a stamp of destruction. Knowing that, what kind of people ought we to be? Reminding ourselves of that knowledge. Reminding ourselves that the job, the house, the car, the diploma, the name on the diploma, the amount on the paycheck. It's all going to burn. Now, knowing many of you here on a Wednesday night, it's not new information. It's not revolutionary. Because we know this. And in and, and, and so much of the time, we don't long for the things of the world. We don't long for the things that we can touch and hold. But this reminder, this reminder of what is passing and what is eternal is always helpful because it puts the entirety of our Christian walk and our daily walk with Christ 
into perspective. There are things that will last, and there are things that won't last. When we think of an event like Hope in a Future, we were able to sponsor many gifts for many children. They're all going to burn. We were able to give them access to an awesome facility, get them all together and have a good time. The best of times, the things that we associate with those things, they're all marked for destruction. Even now. But the relationships, the care and the compassion, the truth about who Jesus is and what he did and how that even makes sense in the light of a world full of broken families and broken children. That can have eternal, permanent implications. It can be so easy to fall on one side of the spectrum or the other and be so concerned with casting off the things of the world that we forget that they're tools. If buying a Nerf gun allows me to share the gospel, then I'll order a semi-truck. If Inviting friends over for a nice meal or a nice dinner allows us time to fellowship and have real focused conversations that allow us to grow in the Lord and in our relationship, be the body of Christ, to bear one another's burdens. The table that we eat on is going to burn. The home that the table's in is going to burn, the clothes that we're wearing, the food that we ate, the farms where that food come from, it's all going to perish. It's an important reminder. And as Peter asks the question, he, he asks it in a rhetorical way. Like it, it begs the question, knowing that all of this is in one of two categories, temporary or eternal. And of everything you know, the word of God is eternal and the souls inside, those that you love and those that you hate and those that you despise, those are eternal. Everything else is marked for destruction. Everything else is in the temporary category. Everything else is either a distraction or a tool. Peter says, what kind of people should we be? How should we act? How should we behave? And he answers the question himself. He answers it through holy conduct, godliness. He says we're to be looking for and hastening the coming day of God.
there in verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Holy conduct and godliness are really big and broad categories. Because as Peter makes this argument near the conclusion of his letter, he's very much so functioning from a top-down perspective. He doesn't want to give you specific guidance as to how to handle that particular conversation or this difficulty in that relationship or even that individual sin or temptation. But he says, let's just reframe everything as either eternal or temporary. And if as we look at the situations of our life, where we spend our money, how we use our time, what we worship in the silence of our hearts and minds, the things that get the attention of our thoughts, if we start with Jesus and we pass that through an understanding of what is temporary, what is destined for destruction, what will perish whether or not we see the day when that's fulfilled, and what is eternal. It's an important perspective as we plan out and pray over the limited amount of time that we have to serve the Lord. But there in verse 12, it also says, um, yeah, there in verse 12, it says something very interesting. That phrase, hastening the coming day of God. Now, the day of God is different than the day of the Lord, and we'll talk more about that in verse 13. But this idea, how can we hasten? How can we speed up? How can we hurry along the day of God? Well, he says, with our holy conduct and with godly, godliness. How? How could our conduct, how could our actions possibly influence when the Lord will return? Starting this chain of events that will lead to the day of God. It's really intimidating when you think about it. Now, of course, we're versed with the thoughts and the understanding that we're not going to violate God's sovereignty. Just as He chooses to honor our free will, but it, perhaps it's not as strange of a concept as you might think once we compare it to other parts in Scripture. Think of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Your kingdom come. Maranatha, even as we touched on Sunday. Lord, come quickly. Come now. Why? Why do we say that? Is it not an honest prayer? Are we just saying it to say it? No, we're making the desire of our heart known. And is that not a godly desire? Is that not a, a righteous request? Can't we honestly say, 
that that's what we would say to our king? Father, come. Come for your church. And hold that at the same time, and the same truth as knowing, but as long as we're still here, we know it's for a reason. We know there's work to do. That's the other way perhaps we can hasten the coming of the day of God. With our witness and with evangelism, we know that there will come a time uh, uh, upon the bringing into the fullness of the Gentiles that God will turn his focus from the church back to Israel. And we know it's the Lord's heart that no one should perish, but that all who are willing would come to eternal life. So then it stands to reason that if the Lord is desiring to use his church, to use his sons and his daughters to do his work, then he will allow the time for that. The quicker we do the work, the quicker we get to go to the wedding. But again, even that is one facet of a very multifaceted truth. Because we as a church could collectively go out and save everybody that wants to be saved right now and sinners will be born tomorrow. And the Lord loves them just as much. The reality is we, 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 we have to hold in tension the knowledge of God's sovereignty and our human responsibility. It's the same in the big picture as it is in each of the small areas of our lives. And this particular text just happens to highlight human responsibility. But in expositing that, I don't at all mean to take away from the wonder, the sovereignty of God, and how God's sovereignty and our responsibility intermingle. But verse 13, nevertheless we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now this is a wonderful picture of the day of God. When contrasted to the day of the Lord, which is a time when God acts in judgment through the tribulation, even in the millennial kingdom, we think of that as a time where God reigns. How could that be a time of judgment? Well, the Lord reigns with a, with a rod of iron. He is still judge and ruler over the millennial kingdom. There will be sin and sinners in the millennial kingdom, those that reject the Lord. But here, verse 13, the day of God is begins at the end of the day of the Lord, at the destruction of the heavens of the earth, and the day of God starts at the formation of a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness 
dwells. The day of God will then be a forever continuing eternal state. And what an awesome picture. What, what a different picture from what we experience now. We see glimpses of righteousness. We strive to surrender to Christ in a way that, that righteousness would, would bubble out of our lives. The righteousness that He's given us. Praise God that because of Christ's righteousness that has been given to us, we can have that relationship with the Lord and Him working through us, but a place where righteousness dwells and, and, and sin is not known. Absolutely beautiful. And now Peter begins his conclusion proper. And Peter does conclusions like a regular guy does conclusions. And as a regular guy, I also like regular guy conclusions because they make sense. And a regular guy conclusion is where you say, if I've wanted to say something important, I would have said it already. So now, in closing, I'm going to say all the important things I already said just a little bit quicker. And we see that starting in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and considering and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. We go through those two verses, and he highlights so many of the things that Peter has written to us, not only in this epistle, but also in 1 Peter. Again, reminded of the fact that he's coming near the end of his life, and this is among the last things he will pen to people he loves very dearly. Among some of the last messages, words, encouragements, exhortations that he'll set out to carry on long after he's there to speak them, after he's there to remind them. But looking forward to these things, Looking forward to what things? The fact that eternity is coming. I remember that so much from our study in 1 Peter. Everything that we experience here has to be held in, in has to be held with the understanding that this world is not our home. We are passing through. We are sojourners. Eternity is coming. Knowing that, we live in Christ's strength and according to His instructions. We have His Spirit living inside of us. We have His Word. And we have His church amongst which His 
Spirit works. That all sounds so good, but day after day it can feel so hard. And that's when we remember that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. It wasn't only through suffering that he went to the cross. It isn't only through his long-suffering, his patience, that more are saved. There was nothing that could have stopped the Lord from coming back 30 years ago, long before I ever had a chance to get to know him. Praise God, he was long-suffering. Praise God, he was long-suffering not only to see me born, but to see me through the period of my life where I was rejecting him. If not even with my mouth, certainly in my heart and with my actions. We also see that in Romans 2.4. And Peter knows that, because that's where Paul said it. He continues in verse 15 and says, As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in his, in, <clears throat> excuse me, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Paul says in Romans 2.4 that the patience, the long-suffering of the Lord leads to repentance. That's certainly my experience. And in a bigger sense, that's all of our experiences. There was always a point where in our hearts and in our lives, uh, explicitly or quietly, we were enemies of God. But it was the suffering of Christ and His patience in coming back, that even gave us an opportunity to come to the Lord. And that opportunity still exists. So if you're hearing this now and you don't have that relationship, if you're hearing this now and you still think you're an enemy to God, if you can look at yourself and say, you know, if God were to return right now, I can't exactly say we would be at peace. That's available to you through what Jesus did on the cross. And make no mistake, there will be a time that the Lord comes to you or you go to the Lord at your death, at His return or at your death. We all need to be covered with the righteous blood of Christ, just acknowledging that we were enemies, that we did rebel, that we are sinners, and that Christ gave us an opportunity 
a free gift and patience enough to allow us to accept it, that we could have that eternal fellowship, that when it comes to the day of God that we're there with Him in heaven. But turning back to Peter's comments on Paul, a couple interesting things to take from this mention at the end of the book. See, this is all happening after Paul severely, publicly rebuked Peter. And we read that in Galatians 2. It would have been easy for people to say that they were on different teams or that they no longer had that fellowship of the church. But we see that Peter received that rebuke. He was wrong. And Paul called him on it. And he repented. And he didn't hold it against his brother. He speaks of him here as a beloved brother. And another thing I find very interesting is it says that he sees that Paul was given wisdom. Today, when we ask questions about the Bible, it's all conveniently bound together for us. And we can study the history of the canon and all the reasons why we trust that God led people throughout church history to preserve His Word. But even here, as Peter was writing this, it was clear to him and supposedly others that Paul's writings at the time were recognized as divinely inspired. That he was given wisdom. It says, Paul also, in all of his epistles, speaking of of these things, these same things, many of the same things that Peter has spoken about over his two epistles. He says, in which some things are hard to understand. Now, this isn't a shunt against Paul or his style of writing or his ability to communicate, but rather... The difficult nature of our limited ability as humans to comprehend the great truths that Paul was speaking. It's not that Paul was writing down the wrong words. It's not that Paul didn't use periods. There, when we look at the Word of God, We have to openly acknowledge and remember that it is so deep and so inexhaustible that even collectively as a church, as a church throughout the ages, it is still fresh. There is still life being poured out because the word is living. It is inexhaustible. Yet it's unchanging. 
because of this nature, because of the difficulty of some of the concepts intellectually. A great example would be the Trinity, being born again, being a new creation. All these things, and, and, and Peter also says, as they do this of the rest of the scriptures, so not only some of the perhaps more complicated, more, more difficult to grasp, not to understand, but, but to grasp doctrines that both Peter and Paul taught. He, referencing back to chapter 2, how the, how the false teachers would, would twist and manipulate these things. That untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. One of my favorite sayings, and I think I first heard it from Patrick. I know I first heard it from Patrick. I don't know if he first said it. That if you torture scripture enough, it'll confess to anything. That's what Peter is speaking of. Not Paul's inability to communicate. But the grandness of some of these topics that sinful men with wrongful intentions can take, use to their advantage for their own destruction, for their own destruction. But he says then in verse 17, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. This is what people are going to do. People are going to take the truth of the Word of God, and they're going to twist it, and they're going to turn it, and they're going to torture it, and they're going to want to make it fit whatever's going on, whatever works for them. Know this ahead of time. We've seen people do it even but Peter is saying, we've seen people do this even now with what Paul is teaching currently. And we've seen it for the centuries since then. Even today, some of the conclusions that people draw out of Scripture just astound me. In, until I realize that it's, it's not that they misunderstand Scripture. It's that they're not out to glean the proper understanding. They're not opening it like a medical kit seeking to be healed by the wonderful counselor. But they're opening what was intended to be used for a healing surgery and taking that scalpel and using it to hold people hostage with their false doctrines and wrong ideas. But we know better. Peter says, don't be led away with the error of the wicked, but instead grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is no standing still in the Christian faith. You are growing, you are moving forward, or you're being led away. If by no other measure, 
then after everything that Peter has said about the temporary nature of our lives on this earth, of so many of the things around us, every day we do nothing, we have lost one of the most valuable resources we have. Not only do we know how many of those days we have individually, but collectively, as, as an earth, the earth has a number of days left. Maybe you think you're healthy and you're safe. The earth is going to run out of time. But so are we as individuals. So we remember these things. We be mindful of these things. And we be ever diligent to grow. To grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's interesting the way that's phrased. We grow in the grace. The grace of God cannot grow because the grace of God is infinite. But we grow into a fuller and more honest, more intimate experience of God's grace, which is already inexhaustible. Not only do we grow in that way, but in our knowledge of Jesus. And that's not just a head knowledge. It's not just knowledge of His Word, but of a personal relationship, of an experience of a walk. And then Peter closes. To him, to Jesus, be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Peter's here, super aware of his approaching death. Overflowing with the love that he received from his Savior. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Trying to pour that out on the brothers and sisters that were around him. And that's his last line. Give God the glory. Specifically, Jesus. This is one of, I believe, only two doxologies that specifically are addressed to Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the one who through his sacrifice, through his suffering, gave us the opportunity to come to repentance. And so now, we give Him the glory. We give Him the glory as we walk in suffering. We give Him the glory as we live lives of godliness, of worship. We give Him the glory as we dive deeper into His Word and His character and into our personal relationship. 
Let's pray. Father God, you are unsearchable. But yet you've made yourself known. Lord, as we have these last few days leading up to Christmas Eve and Christmas, allow us to meditate on the fact that Jesus Christ had a beginning to his life on earth. Just like one day this earth will have an end. Just like one day these bodies that we live in will have an end. Father, we thank you so much for the sacrifice of the cross. That we can be confident that because of the righteousness that's found in your Son, that we can glorify him forever. But Lord, we pray for the strength to do that now in the midst of the holidays, in the midst of one calendar year turning to the next, in the midst of both the extraordinary and the ordinary. Father, give us the strength and the wisdom and the Spirit, your Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to glorify your Son now and indeed forever. Amen.